Join us in singing together. It's a great day to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. Be quiet, long. 
Let's shout out some praise this morning. Oh man, it's so good to be here with you all. So good to see you guys. And so I love the fact that we get to gather together and with one voice lift up the name of Jesus. That we just get to sing and we get to lavish him with praise from a place of just joyfulness and thanksgiving. So can you just lift up your voices with us as we sing this out together, okay? I searched the world But it couldn't fill me Man's empty praise and Treasures of faith Never enough Then you came along And put me back together Every desire is now satisfied hearing your love. Oh, oh, there's nothing better than you. Oh, there's nothing better than you. Oh, there's nothing. Nothing is better. Oh, I know it's true I'm not afraid To show you my weakness My failures and flaws Lord, you've seen them all And you still call me friend Cause the God of the mountain God of the valley, there's not a place your mercy and grace won't find me again. Oh, there's nothing better than you. Oh, there's nothing better. Oh 
Come on, church. Better than you, Lord, there's nothing. Oh, better than you, oh, there's nothing. Nothing is better than you. Oh, oh there's nothing. Better than you, oh, there's nothing. Better than you, oh, there's nothing. Nothing is better than you. Hey, you praise this morning. Amen, amen. Oh 
and he's still on the throne. You know, Revelation even shows us if you go into the throne room, there's just angels right now surrounding him saying, holy, holy, and they worship him. And I love the fact that we together, right here, right now, the Bible says that he made a way so we can come boldly to the throne. That means that we can come and we can approach him. We don't have to, to have anything holding us back. We can actually come before God because Jesus made a way for us to do that. So in our hope and our desire is that, yes, we're leading you up here, but our hope is that you'll come with us as we just seek and as we approach the feet of Jesus and we just lift up the name of Jesus and worship him and we lavish him with praise because he is worthy. He is holy and he is worthy of all of our affections, of all of our attentions. And so uh, I just want to encourage us in these moments, let's just with one voice, with one heart, just worship 
God, just come before him and just lift up the name of Jesus. And it doesn't matter how you sing. It doesn't matter where you've come from or what you're dealing with right now. Just come and bring everything before him and just worship him. So can we do that, church? Can we just as a community just come before him? Just let this song be our cry before him as we just approach the throne. How I live for the moments where I'm still in your presence. All the noise dies down. Lord, speak to me now. You have all my attention. So I will linger and listen. I can't miss a thing. Because, Lord, I know my heart wants more of you. My heart wants something new. So I surrender all. Because all I want is to live within your love. Be undone by who you are. My desire is to know you. Throw my fears into the wind. I am desperate for a touch of heaven. Oh, 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 You're the fire in the morning. You the cool in the evening, the breath in my soul, the life in my bones. There is no hesitation in your love and affection. It's the sweetest of all. Cause Lord, I know my heart wants more of you. My heart wants something new so i surrender all yes we do and all i want is to live within your love be undone by who you are my desire is to know you I am desperate for a touch of heaven. Oh, 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 Jesus. I am so desperate for you. We are so desperate for you. We just want more of your love, more of your presence. More of you, Lord, open up my heart to you. Open up my heart to you now. So do what only you can do. Jesus, have your way in me now. 
Let this be your prayer. I open up my heart to you. I open up my heart to you now to do what only you can do. Jesus, have your way in me now. Don't hold back. Come on. I open up my heart to you. I open up my heart to satisfy every longing within us, God. We thank you, Jesus, that you made a way so that we can come boldly to the throne, that we can lift up our prayers, our needs, our desires, our wants, God. But in these moments, too, we don't want our needs and our wants, Father, to take precedent over just worshiping with you because you alone are worthy of our praise. You alone are worthy of our attention and our affections, God. God, I just pray, Lord, that we would see less of ourselves and we are in your presence and more of you, God. That everything that we face would just dim, Lord. And that we would just come face to face with your glory, with who you are.
desire is to know you deeper. Lord, I will open up again. Throw my fears into the wind. I am desperate for the touch of heaven. pray that we do not lose this spirit. Lord God, I pray that you just fill us. God, as we pre prepare to hear the, the message that James is going to speak, God, I pray that you would just pour out yourself into all of us, God, and that we would receive it. And it would just be more than just a Sunday message to make us feel good, God. But it is something that impacts us for the rest of our lives. So I thank you, God, for what you're going to do in advance. That's in Jesus' name we all say and pray. Amen. Well, this morning we begin the wrap-up to our Summer Revelation series. And um, with this theme, this mini-theme of uh, the throne, this idea that everything starts at the throne. And so this morning, I want to tell you a little bit about your future and what the world is coming to in the future. I'm a person that likes to travel. I've traveled all over the world. Uh, but what I especially like about traveling, if you were to look at a lot of my pictures from traveling, what you would see is I love to take pictures of doorways, archways and gateways. There's something about a doorway and an archway and a gateway that's really, really cool. And so I got some pictures from my travel. You saw Petra there that's in Jordan and uh, the, you know, the cathedral there in Notre Dame. And, and there's a picture of me at the open tomb there, uh, what people say is the open tomb uh, from Jesus. And there's a whole bunch of pictures because I love doorways, I love gateways, and I love archers. And uh, if, you, if you were to Google doorways, or if you would do, Google great archways, uh, you would have a whole bunch of stuff that would come up that shows you these doorways. There's something about a doorway and how a person decorates a doorway and what's at the doorway and what's on the door that I really, really like. And, and I've seen some amazing doors and I've seen some amazing archways and gateways in my life, but there's nothing quite as amazing as what John describes to us in Revelation as he begins to go into the doorway or into the door that he is called to, to go up into. Revelations 4.1 says like this, And then I looked, and oh, oh, a door opened into heaven. And this doorway, the apostle John gets to do what we all like to do. We, we all like to have that. We have this question, what is heaven going to be like? What's going to be going on in heaven? And, and John gets to do that. Now, we've heard some stories. We hear stories of people who've died for a moment or two. And usually they tell the story of, of going to heaven and, and, and they see this light and they see peace and they see love. And it's somewhere that they never want to leave. 
doorways. So John gets to step into heaven, not, not actually just kind of go to the doorway and see the doorway. He gets to step into heaven. It's not the first time that a doorway into heaven has been opened because Ezekiel, the great prophet of the Old Testament, and Isaiah, another great prophet, the two great prophets of the Old Testament, uh, got a chance to see what was in heaven. But John doesn't just get to see through the doorway. He gets a personal invite. It's almost like he got this sealed envelope from the king or the, the president or, or some kind of royalty that says, hey, you get an invite to heaven. So he gets a personal invite and he gets it into the throne room. He gets to go into the holy of holies. Now, let me give you a warning here. You know, when we see uh, people who do uh, reviews of movies or TV shows, they usually say something like this, warning, spoiler alert. So this morning, I want to give you a warning. There's a spoiler alert coming because we have this view of heaven. And, and this morning, I'm going to kill some of your, maybe your Sunday school teaching about heaven. If you grew up in Sunday school, I grew up in Sunday school. I would go to Sunday school, and we had some teaching in heaven about Sunday school, and I'm going to try to kill a little bit of it. In Sunday school, it seems that we were taught, at least I was, that heaven is a place somewhere out there where all our dreams come true. It's like Disney wrote it, right? Heaven is some place out there where all our dreams come true. But in reality, heaven is more like a spiritual dimension. It's right here and it's right now. We just can't see it. So as we begin to dive into this section of the ladder, we need to remember there are three important things, three important perspectives to understanding the book of Revelation. Perspective number one, if you're going to understand the book of Revelation, you have got to understand the Old Testament. You've got to understand the first testament of the Bible. Because in this book, in this book of Revelation, you have over 300 references to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. The second thing you got to understand is the first century times in which John lived. you got to understand the context in which John lived. Many of the pictures that he paints are recognizable by the audience. So sometimes we look at him and we say, what is he talking about? Is he crazy? I mean, has he been smoking something? But they understood it. It's just like if I come to you and I say, man, you got a hot car, you understand that it'd be one or two things. Either it's stolen, or your car is fast and it looks good. You understand because this is the culture and context in which you live. And in the same way, the hearers, the first hearers of John's story, his message, this book of Revelations would have understood what he was talking about. See, when John said things like seven or four, or 666, or 12, or 24, they had certain meanings. For instance, they understood that seven was the perfect number, the number of God. When John speaks of eyes, the hearers knew what he meant, and they also knew what he meant by stars. In order to understand Revelation, we have to do some contextual research. We have to understand the context that he was talking to. You know, we sometimes act 
as if that revelation was written to U.S. America in August of 2021. I mean, sometimes we think, well, of course he's talking to us and, and, and these flying things are going to be helicopters and we kind of just think it's written to us. The third thing you got to understand to get this third division of Revelation is that when John is in heaven, time as we know it is suspended. There are times when John is in real time and other times where he goes right back to the beginning of time and there's other times where he's at the end of time. And so time is suspended in this book. And so these folks who are trying to put times together and add numbers together and comes up with days and years and months and weeks, don't listen. Because John is in a situation where time is suspended. Confused yet? <laughs> As we go through the book, I'll clarify what is what concerning time. So if you hold on to those three things, you, you understand the Old Testament, you understand the context, or you, you, you get that there's some context to this, and you understand that the suspension of time when John is there, that will help you understand the book. The second thing, I think when we started this series, I told you the main thing is Jesus. The main thing is Jesus, all right? So that was the first thing. Let me add a, another book to your understanding of this book. The second thing is it's worship and not worry. Write that down. It's worship and not worry. If you're going to understand the book of Revelation, if you're going to clip the padlock in your mind by moving, you got to do this so by moving from an attitude of worry to an attitude of worship. Worry about what? Worry about things like what's going to happen. Worry about things like, am I going to be left behind? Worry about things like, when is the rapture happening? Worried about things like, uh, you know, is my family going to make it? We get worried. Worthy, am I going to have to live through the tribulation? You know, we get worried about things. A lot of the study book of the book of Revelation and a lot of our interest in the book has to do with worry about how we go through the things that we see in the book. But here's the problem with that attitude. The problem with that attitude is that does not unlock the book. If we really want to understand the book, you have to go from worry and embrace an attitude of worship. It hit me like a ton of bricks as I was studying this, this message this week. The whole of scripture is about whom we will worship. From beginning to end, it's all about whom will we worship. Remember, Adam and Eve walked in the cool of the day. They had an uninterrupted relationship with the God who created them. And they walked away from that relationship. And God, in his infinite grace, has been drawing us back every since. So when you step through the pages of the book of Revelation, do so with the attitude of worship, recognizing God for who he is and his greatness. When you step through each verse and each, each scripture with this attitude of worship, you begin, it begins to unlock things and it begins to make things clearer than they ever have been before. So before God begins to tell us about his plans to renovate, 
to recycle, to renew, to recreate his creation. Before all this, any of the scrolls are unrolled, before any of the trumpets are blown, before any of the bowls are poured out, worship is front and center. The book of Revelation begins with worship, continues in worship, and, in the end, and it ends with worship because worship is the attitude that unlocks the book. So what takes place at the throne? Worship, right? Now, the focus of worship in the book of Revelation is at this throne. Everything is focused around the throne. The throne is the epicenter of everything that's happening. That's why if you're really going to understand the book, you got to understand that the throne and what happens there. The truth is, if you want to understand yourself, if you want to understand the world or anything in light of Revelation, you have to begin at the throne. When I pick up a newspaper and I read things like political unrest and I, I look at things like natural disasters in Haiti and, and wars and strife in Afghanistan and I look at hatred and and destructive relationships and human trafficking and all the stuff that we read about in the paper and we see and hear on the news, I can be tempted to ask this question, what in the world, what is this world coming to? What's going on? That's what book, the book of Revelation is written to answer. What is the world coming to? And the answer is, the throne, everything is moving toward the throne. The throne reminds us there's going to be devastating events. There's going to be some what I call renovation. When I was doing my basement and we were renovating the basement and getting the man cave ready, it took a lot of deconstruction. It took a lot of walls that we did different things with and there was dust and debris and, and junk all over the place. And I would come down in the basement sometime and I would look at it and say, is it worth it all? I would, I would have really loved to kind of snap my hands and it all been done, but there's this stage of deconstruction and, and renovation and recycling and all of that that has to happen. But even with that being true, it cannot change the fact that God's going to take care of his people, that God is in charge, and nothing can change what happens at the throne. And the rest of the New Testament, let me tell you how important the word throne is. In the rest of the New Testament, throne only appears 11 times. But just to show you how important it is to the book, it appears 42 times. And it appears, it appears 11 times just in chapter 4 alone. There are only five chapters in the whole book of Revelation where the word does not appear. Ray Steadman, pastor and biblical expositor, has said this. I love it. The fact that there is a throne means that there are absolutes that cannot be altered or changed. The authority of that Throne guarantees them. Nothing a man, a woman can do can alter them in the least degree. So let's go to the throne. I'm going to be reading from Revelations 4, 1 through 6, and we're going to go through probably verse 11. But let's start there. Then I looked and oh, a door opened in heaven, the trumpet voice, the voice in my vision called out, ascend and enter, and I'll show you what happens next. 
I was caught up with once in a deep worship, and oh, a throne set in heaven with one seated on a throne, suffused in gem hues of amber and flame and nimbus and emerald, 24 thrones, 24 thrones circled, 24 thrones, excuse me, circled the throne with 24 elders seated, white robe and gold crowned, lightning flash and thunder crash pulsed from the throne. Seven fire blazing torches fronted the throne. These are the sevenfold spirits of God. And before the throne, it was like a clear crystal sea. And so you, don't you love this, this scene? John gets to, John gets to this, see this image of God. God. God couldn't show him the completeness of himself, but he could show him an image of himself. And what did he see? It was something he couldn't even explain. And so John takes this human effort to try to explain what God looks like. He saw color. He saw beauty. He saw excitement like he had never seen before in his life. He didn't see a black and white heaven. He saw a technicolor, HDTV, 4K heaven. He saw something more colorful than anything he had seen in his life, and he couldn't even explain it. He saw something awesome. And I know that we use the word awesome all the time, and it's overused, but he saw something that struck him with awe. He saw something that was worthy of his, uh, a mixture of wonder and dread. And so the first thing that I want to help you understand is the throne is a place of awe. Our God is an awesome God. And John the Apostle in his first letter, 1 John, wrote about God. When he wanted to describe God, this God who is sitting on the throne, this God who is all colors, had come upon him. When, when, when he had seen God, he, is, he described him this way. God is light, pure light. There's not a trace of darkness in him. Perfect purity, perfect light, no darkness in who he is, no darkness on the throne. Those hues, those, those different colors around the throne remind me of this idea of a rainbow. We never actually see the end of a rainbow, but if you would look from the sky, you would see the, this rainbow and you would see these colors. And I'm reminded when I hear the word rainbow of Noah and the days of Noah. When God finishes, the, the, uh, when God finishes to destroying the earth and, and everything is new, he, he puts a rainbow in the sky. It's this idea that he's hung up his bow and he promises never to destroy the earth by flood again. The rainbow was God's symbol of promise. So secondly, the throne is a place of promise. Every promise, every promise is kept, that's kept in this world based on God's word, emanates from and originates from the throne. There's one supreme headquarters. There's, there's one spot that reigns supreme, one central location from which every promise that God has ever made comes, and it's at the throne. And John sees it. And he begins to worship the one who keeps his promises. From the throne also comes lightning flash and, and thunder crash. And in Exodus 19, when God's presence comes to earth during the giving of the Ten Commandments, the Bible says this, on the third day, at daybreak, there were loud claps of thunder, flashes of lightning, a thick cloud covering the mountain, and an ear-piercing trumpet blast. 
Everyone in the camp shuddered in fear. This is a picture that has been lost over the ages. You heard people say this. They talk about being struck by lightning, right? Like, may I not be struck by lightning? What they're talking about when they say that is, is this picture here. They hear the lightning, they, they hear the flashing, and they're, they're, they're afraid and they don't want to be struck by lightning. The throne is also a place of judgment. We, we just don't like the word judgment. I don't know about you, I don't like the word judgment. I, uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't like the word because I've been in a few situations where I had to deal with judgment. My, my, first, my first ticket in Fredericksburg took place one day when I was making my way north and uh, I was getting on 95 at exit three there and uh, there was this 18 wheeler and the 18 wheeler did not slow down or stop and I know they don't stop but he was a ways away and instead of instead of slowing down or at least taking his foot off the gas he put his foot on the gas and you know I told you that I have some issues or I had some issues when it comes to this bad driving thing. And, and so the, he passed me, and, and I was in my little Volvo S40, and it had a turbo engine. I've never quite opened it up. So I decided I would teach him a lesson. So I decided I would come behind him, and then I would just pass him like I would usually do, and then get back in the lane. But before I could do that, I saw a 300ZX. Nissan, and he was driving by me, and I looked over him, and he looked over me, and he gave me the eye. Now, guys, you know what the eye is. And I thought to myself, I'd never opened this up before. And I looked around, and I didn't see any policemen there, and so I thought I would go with him for a little while. And I slammed the gas on, and he slammed the gas on, and for a little while, I went with him. But there was a moment in time where he just went, he was gone. And then I saw these lights behind me. An unmarked state police car. And he pulled me over, and you know what I did? I said, did you see the Nissan that went past me? He said, I couldn't catch him, but I caught you. <laughs> and I got a ticket. And I thought to myself, great, you know, no big deal. I got a ticket. I'll pay the ticket. I'll move on. But then I read the ticket, and it says something about showing up in court because it was a reckless driving ticket. I was going over 85 miles an hour. And I remember someone saying to me, oh, don't show up for the first court date, James. Wait till the second court date. So I, I, I couldn't show up for the first court date. I don't know what the problem was, but I couldn't show up. And I show up for the second court date. And of course, the police guy is there, right? And, and I get there, and, and I see all these cases before me, and they're getting driving school and different things like that. But my case comes up, and the judge said this, and I knew it was done. He said, I see you are recently here from Boston. I had been, I had been in Fredericksburg from Boston for about seven years. And so I knew the book was going, and I went to plead my case and everything like that, and it didn't do And here's the problem. There were people in that courtroom with orange jumpsuits on. And I remember saying to myself as I had my vest on and my nice clothes because I was looking good, and I remember saying to myself, I don't belong here. And I remember God whispering in my ear, did you break the law? And I said, well, yeah, God, I did. 
I don't like judgment. And you probably don't like it either. See, we live in a day where we know that God is going to judge the world, but there's something in us that doesn't quite like that. We like God to be a God of grace and a God of kindness and God of love and a God of flower petals all over the place. <laughs> we like God to be grace and kind. I don't like him to be a God of judgment, yet he is. He is the God of grace, but he's also the God of judgment. See, here's the understanding. Unless there's a possibility of judgment, unless the possibility of judgment is real, does grace even matter? If God is going to be kind and good to everybody, grace is empty. But when you and I realize that real judgment, what real judgment is, when we realize the terrible state we're in in this world and how deeply we're in need of the grace of God and that we would be judged without the grace of God, we begin to see the fullness and the reality of what grace actually is. Let me give you a definition of grace. Grace is not getting what I deserve to get, but getting what I don't deserve to get. Not getting what I deserve to get, death and eternal separation from God, but getting what I don't deserve, eternal life with God. That's what grace is. The throne is a place where judgment begins. Judging what? Sin. Sin, originally set by Satan. Remember, Adam and Eve, our, our fur parents, walked in the cool of the night, in the cool of the day with God. There was no sin. There was no rebellion. There was no disobedience. There was no rape. There was no killing. There was no wars. There were no habits and no hurts and no hang-ups. All of that didn't exist until we made a decision. And because we made a decision, we are born in sin. You want to know how you, I know we were born in sin? When I, when, I, when I met my little daughter, little baby, seven pounds, about three or four ounces, and if I didn't get the baby bottle right away, or if I didn't change her diaper right away, she would let out a scream and throw her little fist up like this, and I knew sin existed in the world. Maybe you've been there. It doesn't, it doesn't take long for a kid to do something that they're not supposed to. You can say, don't do this. We've seen the great experiment where they say, well, don't eat the marshmallow. And they put the marshmallow there and they walk out. And kids that are very young, they just are drawn to the marshmallow. Sin. We inherit it and we commit it. Sin that took this amazing this amazing thing that God created and twisted it and turned it and destroyed it, sin. What kind of God would he be if he did not judge sin? That's why we need Jesus. Without Jesus Christ, that's all the throne is, a place of judgment. But because Jesus, because of what he's done, because he's made a way for us, then then. The throne does not only become a place of judgment, but it becomes a place of grace. John 4, 5 says it like this. John 5, 24, anyone who believes what I'm saying, 
This is Jesus talking right now and aligns himself to the Father who has fact put me in charge has at this very moment real and lasting life and is no longer condemned to be an outsider. So the fact that the throne is a place of judgment doesn't minimize God's grace. When you think about it, when you think about it, when you think about the throne room that includes judgments, it, it actually takes God's grace and takes it to a whole new level. Because God, because of his grace and because of us taking him up on his grace, we're allowed to live with him for eternity. Now things get a little bit more complex. The light colors are easy to figure out. Even the thunder and the lightning are easy to figure out. But now we get a little more difficult. Let's keep reading. Prowling around the throne were four animals, all eyes. Eyes look ahead, eyes look behind. The first animal was like a lion, the second like an ox. The third had a human face, the fourth like an eagle in flight. All four animals winged, each with six wings. They were all eyes seeing around, seeing around and within. And they chanted night and day, never taking a break, holy Holy, holy is God our master, sovereign, strong. The was, the is, the coming. Some of you are going to be in really bad shape because this idea of things going again and again and again and again drives you crazy. But that's going to be the refrain. And, I'm, and, 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 I, and I, don't, I don't like the broken record thing either. But there must be something that's going to be different. So circling the throne with these four creatures, these four animals, first of all, you have to understand that anyone who read these words knew exactly in that day would have recognized these animals immediately. Why? Because they were all familiar with the Old Testament. When Isaiah peered into heaven, he saw the four animals. When Ezekiel had opportunity to go to heaven, he saw the four, four animal creatures. Angel seraphs. Isaiah 6, 2 says this, hovered around him, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, their feet. With two, they flew. Look how the descriptions happen in Ezekiel. Within the fire were what looked like four creatures, bright, vibrant with life. Each of them the form of a human being, but each also had four faces and four wings. It shouldn't surprise you that when people look into heaven, they see the same thing. The lion, the ox, the man, the eagle, they, there are two views of this meaning of the four creatures. The first view is that these creatures represent uh, character qualities. A lion is strong, uh, an ox is patient, a man is intelligent, an eagle is swift. But there's a second view that says that these creature animals represent areas of government. That these four creatures somehow serve God in all creation. The lion is in the wild animals, the ox in tame animals, the man with men, man, and the eagle with flying animals. I like verse view two because the number four is a number used on that day when they would talk about apocalyptic literature. And it usually refers to some kind of government. So they have four creatures surrounding the throne and the earth having these different governing, governing functions in God's creation makes sense. They had wings symbolizing of quickness, available to do God's bidding whenever they wanted. They had eyes 
not just one pair of eyes, but we're all eyes, they would seem almost ugly to us, almost alien to us. But not to John's first century listeners, they would have seen this beautiful picture of intelligence, this beautiful picture of insight and perception. They could see and understand God's creation in ways that no one else or nothing else can. So what did they do? I love this part. The four that were around this throne, these four that seemed to have governing factions, functions, excuse me, in all of God's creation, they chant day and night, never taking a break. Holy, holy, holy is the master, sovereign, strong, the was, the is, the coming. The place, the throne of God is a place also of holiness. The creatures in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah 6 or in the New Testament, they're singing the same thing. Imagine for a moment, Isaiah gets to go into the, to, to, in the Old Testament hundreds of years before this. He gets to go into heaven and he sees this thing, holy, holy, holy. Ezekiel sees this thing, holy, holy, holy. The four living creatures are saying, holy, holy, holy. That's what they do in heaven. And then we get this, this, this next picture here, this next picture of 24 elders. It says 24 thrones circle the throne with 24 elders seated, white robed and gold crowned. And then in verse 10, it says what they do. The 24 elders would fall prostrate before the one seated on the throne. They worship the age after age living one. They threw their crowns at the foot of the throne, chanting, worthy, O Master, yes, our God, take the glory, the honor, the power. You created it all and was all created because you wanted it. Who are these 24 elders? There are two views about this. The first view is the angels. There are 24 representative angels of how God works in creation. The second view is this that they are believers, 24 representative believers of what God does in his people. I think it points to people. They're dressed in white. They have crowns of gold. And, and whether you think they're angels or they're people, the most amazing thing there is, is what they do with their crowns. They lay them down before the throne. It's an amazing, amazing picture and then let's go back to the beginning. The throne is a place of worship. Whatever honors come our way, whatever crowns that we get, whatever, whatever all that stuff that we would take and, and have, it all goes before the one who is worthy, the one who made possible by his grace that we are even in a place where we can be eternally with God whether we do it like they did it, whether we fall prostrate on the ground and throw our crowns, whether we did it like, like they do, it doesn't really make a difference. What makes a difference is at some point in the journey, all of creation honors him. See, we can get lost in the eyes. We can get lost in the wings. We can get lost in the numbers, right? We can get lost in the jewels or the thunder and the lighting. We can get lost in four living creatures or 24 elders. But we better not miss the main thing at the throne. The main thing is all about worship. So let me 
wrap it up like this by telling you our story, your story, and my story. Here's the deal. You and I were born in sin. Heart and sin. And God is holy. And, and the Bible says, without holiness, no one will see God. And so we have this, this gulf between God and us. And there's nothing that can close it. Not hard work, not good deeds, not bootstrapping it. Not all the stuff that we sometimes think that will close that gap between us and God. And because we could not be holy, and because we can't be holy, and because we're born in sin, God has to do something. What does he do? He sends his son, Jesus, so that we can become like him. Philippians 2 says it this way. When the time came, talking about Jesus, he set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave Became a human. He became human. He stayed human. It was an incredibly humbling process. He didn't claim special privileges. Instead, he lived a selfless, obedient life and died a selfless, obedient death. And even the worst kind of death at that, a crucifixion. And because of that obedience, God lifted him high and honored him far beyond anyone or anything ever so that all created beings in heaven and on earth and even those long ago buried will bow and worship before this Jesus Christ and call out praises that he is master of all to the glorious honor of God the Father. And so he comes to, light, he comes to earth and he dies on the cross and he makes this promise that emanates from the throne that in three days he will get up and he keeps his promise and he makes a number of promises to us that because he got up, we will get up too. But here's the key. If the throne is where everything comes from, and if the main thing is Jesus, and the main activity is worship, then that matters. See, I think what happens sometime is that we were made to worship. And what happens sometimes is we worship ourselves, our possessions, our positions, our pride, or some other priority. We worship our nation. We worship other relationships. We worship sin, our addictions. But the only thing that's worthy, really worthy of worship is the lamb. And so the question is, whom will we worship? If that's what everything is coming to, if everything is coming to a throne, if everything is coming to a lamb who was slaughtered, if everything is coming to bowing down and singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, if everything is coming to that, 
then the question becomes, what is the distraction that keeps us from worshiping the one who is worthy of worship? Because here's the deal, when all the other things that we worship are gone, and when they crash and they burn, and they're done, the one who will be standing tall, the one who created it all and redeemed it all and made it all possible by his grace, he will still be standing So you know what your future is now. I have this perspective that I just want to start doing now what I'm going to do forever. Let me give you a neat definition of worship because it's kind of confusing. If you've not been in the church very long, you might not understand what worship is. Worship is a 24-7 lifestyle of surrendering ourselves and giving God worth. That's what worship is. It's great when we gather here in worship and song and worship in the word. It's great when you gather, if you gather in a small group or something like that. But no, no, it's not just that. Your life is worship on the job, in your home, in your car, when someone cuts you off in traffic. Your life and my life, 24-7 worship. So here's what I know. God, the Holy Spirit, shows up whenever we gather like this. The Bible says we're two or three are gathered, and there's way more than two or three online in this auditorium. God is present. So if you ask him this question, Lord, who am I worshiping? What am I worshiping? It won't take long for him to put a mirror in front of your face like he does so often in mine. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for being the God who's worthy of our worship, the God who makes possible a relationship with you, the God who came near to us when we couldn't come near to you. And so, God, you're the God who loves us, the God who created us to worship him and, and serve him forever. And so, Father, would you help us? It's so easy to worship other things. It's so easy to put our attention on other things. It's so easy to be twisted in the, this sinful world's kind of mode. And it's so easy And that's why we need grace. So Father, I pray today that you would hear us. You would speak to us, that we would listen and you would hear us. Father, I, I just believe there's some people here today for the very first time who know nothing about a relationship, heard about it, maybe even grew up church, walked away, done, nuns. And you might say today, man, there's something in me that pushes me towards that, that idea of worship. That's because you were creating an image of God with this need to worship and, uh, and unless you find the right thing, you will worship everything else but the right thing. And so I just believe you can pray a prayer. God, I want to worship you. I want you to be the throne, the enthroned in my life. I want you to sit on the throne of my life and be the God who is in charge. I take you up on your grace. I ask for forgiveness. I make a turnaround. And then there's some people here today 
who your worship has been misplaced. And you need to reprioritize your worship. The good news is God already knows that, and he's made a way possible for that to happen. Father, thank you for all that you're doing. Thank you for you being the God who's worth our adoration, our 24-7 expression of love. Help us. Help us to worship you and to serve you only. In your name we pray, amen. Love you guys. Thanks, James, for painting the picture of what our future holds. Um, my name is Chris, and we're thankful that each one of you online and in person uh, spent some time with us today. Uh, thank you for being here. Uh, just want you to know if it's your first time uh, with us. Uh, again, we're excited that you chose to take some time out of your day to be with us. And if you're comfortable, uh, we would invite you to uh, connect with us. If you're comfortable with that, we invite you to simply go use your phone and text SF Connect to 94000. And we'll just get two simple pieces of information from you there, but also give you an opportunity to uh, connect with us and ask us any questions you may have about who we are and what we do. Uh, many of you also, every single week, honor God by the giving of your tithes and offerings, and perhaps you've used the giving kiosk out in the lobby, and you can continue to do that. But we do have a new way of, of you uh, giving as well, and that's simply text SFGIVE to 94000, and that will take you to our giving platform. And once you set that up, it's real easy from that point on, uh, just a couple clicks and uh, you're good to go there. Uh, the last thing on your seats, each one of you had a card. Uh, there's a card there for our community uh, fireworks celebration, and we just want to encourage you to take that card and... If you want to grab some more out in the lobby, take those and give them to a neighbor or two or a friend or two. And just really help us um, get the word out. This is a community celebration, not Salem Fields community, but Spotsylvania County community. Uh, that's one thing Salem Fields is for. We are for Spotsylvania County, and we want to celebrate. It's been a long year and a half, and we just want to get people together outdoors and have a good time and, and celebrate the best we can. Uh, there will be all types of activities. They start at 430 you don't have to come at 4.30, you can come at 7 if you want. You can come right before the fireworks start. Obviously, they'll start when it gets dark. Uh, just come and uh, invite some friends. Also, one last thing, if you are interested in being part of the team that puts this on, uh, our team lead would, would love for you to be part of that, and you can simply text fireworks to 94,000, and she will get in touch with you very soon to see how you can participate and make this happen. Uh, again, we're glad that you were with us today. Thank you so much for being here. And as you leave our campus and you're driving around town, just remember to keep it under 80, all right? Um, we don't need that reputation, right? But hey, we bless God for you, and thank you again for being here. Have a great week.